when we continually fail over and over again. We're going through the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Let's look at Genesis 21 through 2 to begin. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Abraham is 99 years old at the time of this story. So he moves his family, livestock and servants from Mamre, where they had been, to Gerar. Perhaps it was to get away from enemies. Maybe he thought he could do business better at this location. Gerar was a city-state in what would now be today the Gaza Strip, just northeast of Egypt. It was on the most important trade route between Syria and Egypt. I want to speculate on Abraham's mental state at this time. We have a tendency to go low after we've been really high. And in chapter 18, Abraham was really high. I mean, the Lord himself and two angels visited him. They talked about Sodom and what was going to happen to Sodom. And so Abraham intercedes with the Lord. And we looked at that last week, that beautiful prayer back and forth. Sodom was destroyed because there weren't ten righteous people in it. But I have a feeling that God told Abraham that he had delivered Lot out. Also, the Lord and the two angels came to deliver a message of a birth announcement that he, Abraham and Sarah, would be having a child together in about a year. So it's great stuff. Abraham's got to be on top of the world. But I wonder if Abraham forgot that promise of Sarah having a child, because what he does next is kind of strange. When God delays, we forget We get discouraged and disappointed with God and go off and do our own thing. We've seen that before with Abraham. So he moves to wealthy Gerar. And then verse two. I don't know if that sounded familiar to you as I read that. Tell people you're my sister. Do you remember where this exact thing happened before? It happened in Egypt when they went down there without the Lord's leading In Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. I think we're beginning to see a pattern here with Abraham that his besetting sin is fear. Hebrews 12, 1 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Abraham will tell Sarah, this is how you can show that you really love me. Say that I'm your brother. Abraham is out to save his own skin. He lies to protect himself. And doing that, he puts Sarah in grave danger once again. He hurts his own reputation. He hurts her reputation. He risks Abimelech's life and he jeopardizes Sarah's ability to conceive. Because it could put into the minds of people, who is really the father here? Is it Abraham or is it Abimelech? This is a huge mistake that Abraham is making, and he makes it over and over again, just like us. 
The first part of James 5.17 says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Abraham was a man with a nature like ours. You don't become a great man or woman of faith overnight. You become a great man or woman of faith over a lifetime. Sarah is 89. And so once again, we have to ask the question, why did Abimelech choose an 89-year-old woman to bring into his harem? I mean, did she look younger than her age? Did God rejuvenate her body in preparation for childbirth? I mean, was she youthified? Did she use oil of Olay and get a facelift and liposuction? I think the answer is the king was making a wise choice to have a political alliance with rich Abraham. And he thought she was his sister. I want to share with you four principles from this text that I hope will encourage you. If you're, you're struggling with a besetting sin, you're a repeat offender in some area and you want to be free. I'm not talking about the person that loves their sin and wants to stay in it, but the person who wants to be free. What does God do for that person who's struggling? Number one, he protects them. In verses 3 to 7, we read, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, And the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. We see in this section right here how God feels about adultery. It's a sin serious enough to kill the offender. And the only reason he doesn't kill the offender is sheer mercy. Jesus said, even if you look upon a woman that lust after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It says every other sin. Sexual sins are unique in that we become one with the other person. It's the nearest thing to union with Christ being born again that there is. So sex outside of marriage doesn't make one's life better. It makes it more complicated. And that's why God reserves it exclusively for marriage between a man and a woman. It's usually the enraged husband who wants to kill the adulterer. But here it's God. And God strikes him with an illness, which we see in verse 17. Then gives him a dream of his impending death if he takes Sarah. So Abimelech pleads his case to God, and he is right. He's technically not guilty. 
He would have been, I imagine, if he had not gotten sick. It was God alone who stopped him. In fact, God told him, it was me who stopped you from taking her and sinning against me. Were you ever about to commit a sin and God stopped you? God protects marriages. We probably don't know all the ways that God protects us from ourselves and our sinful desires. He keeps us from sinning against him as he did with Abimelech. He protects our wife's honor. He protects our honor. He protects future offspring. He, he prevents a worse tragedy from happening and befalling us. We probably will never know. As repeat offenders, we deserve God's judgment, but often God protects. He intervenes and stops that from happening or he delays and postpones his discipline on us to give us time to repent. Abimelech summons Abraham and questions him. So let's read that verses eight through 13. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech asks him three questions. And before we talk about Abraham's response, I want you to see this king's heart, how much he cares for his people. In verse four, he's concerned that they as a nation might suffer. In verse eight, we see that they're all afraid of God there. Not every group in that part of the world at that time were like Sodom. People who were beyond correction and hope. It was said of the sin of Sodom. God himself said their sin was very grave. But Abimelech says, Abraham, your sin against me is very great. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary to India and he met with Gandhi and asked him in this conversation, what do you suggest that we could do as missionaries to spread the gospel of Christ so that Christianity would overtake India? And here's how Gandhi responded. He said, Christians should live like their master, Jesus, and it will. Don't water down your message and emphasize love. Study our religion so you will be sympathetic toward us. I think that's a very fair response. So I picture Abraham standing red faced under his thick beard like he did before the Pharaoh. He was busted. So he makes excuses to account for his white lie. All of us have blind spots in our lives and some struggle with a besetting sin, which we often excuse. Verse 11, Abraham says, I did it because 
I just assumed there was no fear of God in this place. But in verse 8, we read that the people were very much afraid of God. So he was wrong on that count. He has a morally superior attitude that I'm better than you pagans here, which is a common thinking among Christians. It shows that he has little faith in God's ability to reach pagans with the truth. He wrongly assumes since they don't know God and they're pagans that they will kill him. He's wrong again. In verse 12, he's partially true. He and Sarah were half siblings, but they were married. They lived together as husband and wife, not brother and sister. So he used this fact to deceive people. He, he used it as a convenience when it was beneficial for him to do so. In verse 13, he offers another weak excuse. He says, everywhere we go, you're to say this. We know of only one other place, Egypt. So he has a tendency to bend the truth to suit himself. It's a weakness in him. And then in verse 13, there's the word God there. It's actually Elohim, plural. It could be translated gods. Is he trying to not offend Abimelech's belief in many gods? It's almost like Abraham is telling Abimelech, God is the one who did this because he's the one that put me in this situation that I had to go to all these different places. You know, the devil made me do it. What else does God do in his great mercy for repeat offenders? Second thing, God blesses them. Look at verses 14 to 16. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Jesus said that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust because he's kind. And so Abimelech showers Abraham and Sarah with gifts. He, he's very generous and goodwilled, this king. His offer of land must have rang in the ears of Abraham, who would remember the promise of God to him of land that God was giving him. And in this case, interestingly enough, the Gaza Strip. He even blesses Sarah, which was very unusual, especially for a king to even recognize a woman by name. But he vindicates her. The 50 shekels of silver would be the, the common bride price. But he gives her a thousand pieces. Again, very generous. I think from this we can learn that when we fail, not if we fail, when we fail, confess our sin. God is willing to forgive. He wants to forgive our sin and he wants to bless. When the disciples asked Jesus, how often should we forgive someone who offends us even up to seven times? Remember what he said? Seventy times seven times. And if that's the human standard for us forgiving one another when we sin against each other and we ask for forgiveness, how much more God wants to forgive the repeat offender who says, Lord, I'm sorry, help me. 
First John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I was about 20 years old, I'd been a Christian for about a year. I committed a sin. And I felt badly about it. But that day, same day, got a phone call from a company that I applied for a job with. They offered me the job and making three times more money than I had previously been making. And I thought to myself, why that day of all days when I committed this sin against God, when he blessed me so abundantly? You know, the result was I was so humbled. I broke down and cried and was very sorry for my sin. Romans 2, 4 says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Here's another thing that God does for repeat offenders. He uses them. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So God uses Abraham to pray for Abimelech's illness and his harem's barrenness. I think it's interesting that God closed all the wombs of Abimelech's household as Sarah's had been closed. But hers was soon to open, and now so were all of them. God blesses this king's household through Abraham's prayers. God uses sinners. David, the adulterer and murderer. Samson was a serial offender, if there ever was one. And God used him mightily. Peter denied even knowing who Jesus was. Paul killed Christians. Abraham lied. You and me. All of us are repeat offenders. Yet we're still loved by God. He wants us to come to him and confess our sin and receive forgiveness. He wants to bless us. He wants to use us. And fourthly, God forgives them. And this has been implied all along. The forgiveness of God. In verse 7, he calls Abraham a prophet. The first time that is used in the Bible about anyone. In verse 17, he hears his prayer. And throughout the Bible, the Bible is clear. If we repent, God forgives. Now, I started my sermon this morning by reading Romans 7, 18 to 19. I want to close by reading Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our only hope as repeat offenders is God's power through Christ. He is our hope. While this is not Abraham's best moment in a couple chapters, he's going to have a crowning moment. This is not his best. And sometimes some days it's not our best moment either. But God loves us and wants to forgive us. There's always hope in God. Let's pray.
Lord, what I love about the Bible is the, the stories of the heroes of Scripture aren't just painted a pretty picture for us, but they show truth, how human beings really are. And so we can identify with them. We can identify with Peter. We can identify with Abraham that we do things in a selfish manner to preserve our own skin, to make ourselves look good. Lord, we know that when we do fall short, that we can confess our sins and receive forgiveness. So now, as we soon take communion, we want to be pure before you. And we know we can't do that in our own flesh. Paul says no good thing dwells there. But Christ dwells in us if we believed. So we ask this morning that you would forgive our sins. We take a moment to confess them to you. Lord, if anyone here this morning is not born again, they do not have a personal relationship with Christ before they would take communion as they should not. It's a meal for believers that right there, right in their seat, they can ask you to cleanse them from all their sin, that they would receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving in our hearts as we use this as a time of reflection on our lives, because we do want to represent you, Jesus, well to those around us. We don't want to be fake. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be authentic. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.